Amen. Okay, Numbers chapter 25, if you can join me there. As we continue our study through the book of Numbers, we sort of wrap up this last of a section of chapters dealing with this sort of enigma of an individual that really gets a lot of real estate in the Bible, this man named Balaam. Uh, interesting enough, I don't think I have mentioned yet thus far in the last few chapters as we've been looking at the account including him. Uh, Balaam is an interesting character in that he actually ends up getting more real estate in the Bible than uh, some of the apostles themselves, than Mary the mother of Jesus. I mean this man who certainly indeed is portrayed in a very negative light uh, by the same time is referred to continuously both in Old and New Testament uh, warning and cautioning not to be like him the error of Balaam the way of Balaam the doctrine of Balaam as we'll talk about tonight and uh, we saw that this man Balaam comes into the scene just briefly as a backdrop chapters uh, 22, 23, and 24 because King Balak of Moab was threatened by the presence of the children of Israel who had been accomplishing some very profound military victories over some of the enemies in their territory. They're right on the edge of the promised land now, about ready to go in. And of course, because they're on the edge of what God's best and God's blessing is for them, uh, the intensity of warfare increases in their life, just as it does in our life when we're on the edge of something God's about to bring us into that involves his best or his ideal. And Balaam, uh, Balak, excuse me, King Balak of Moab, being threatened by their presence, calls for and sends from hundreds of miles away for this man Balaam who was some individual a, a, a spiritist a, uh, a fortune teller of sorts a diviner who was known to have contact with the spirit realm who seems was uh, paid many a times hired out his services to pronounce curses and blessings and so forth uh, very well known King Balak summons him offers him a vast amount of money and he comes and ultimately succumbs to the offers of uh, his greed wanting to be paid to do this and is asked to come and to curse the children of Israel. And we saw how four different times uh, he went through all these ritualistic activities as King Balak asked him to and every time he tried to pronounce a curse upon the children of Israel, God's people, a blessing came forth from his mouth. Now, at the end of that, in the utter frustration, remember, of King Balak, who really we saw last time came to this place where he basically became so frustrated and so angry with him that every time he was supposed to pronounce a curse, a blessing under the inspiration of the Spirit of God who just overruled in Balaam's life came out of his mouth and pronounced a blessing on Israel. King Balak became so upset, he basically said, look... If you can't say anything bad, then just shut up. Don't say anything at all. You know, just the exact opposite, as we'll say. If you can't say anything good, we tell our kids, don't say anything at all. Well, Balak was saying, look, if you can't curse them, then just stop. Give, I paid you to curse them, and you're not doing it for me so that I can defeat them. And chapter 24, verse 25, look at the last verse there. says, so Balaam rose and departed and returned to his own place. And Balak, the king, also went his way. So it seems now there's this parting of these two. Now, though there may have been a temporary parting, an initial departure between them relationally, and maybe even circumstantially, uh, this wasn't the end of their relationship. And it's important to understand that and how that pertains to chapter 25 uh, that we're going to look at this evening. Whether that means Balaam just went back to his place, that is, to the place where he was staying in the territory there uh, of uh, where King Balak was, 
or whether it means he went all the way back to his place but before he got there another idea prompted in his mind and he thought you know I didn't get paid to curse them that didn't seem to work but there's got to still be some way I can manipulate the system and get some hire and pay out of this situation so he now returns back at some point and gives some advice and input to King Balak of another way whereby he might bring down the children of Israel and be able to defeat them in essence Balaam is going to say to him and we'll talk about this because it's the backdrop of this chapter which is important he's going to say to them look you can't defeat them you can't curse them their God is too strong he loves them too much they serve an almighty God however there is one vulnerability that they have and that's this what you can do is you can get them to defeat and to curse themselves you can't curse them because their God won't do that and their God is too strong and you'll never defeat them from without but what you can do is defeat them from within by getting them to defeat themselves by getting them to bring a curse upon themselves because their God is also a holy God and a jealous God for their affection and he wants their absolute allegiance and if you can get them to dishonor their God then they will bring defeat upon themselves as their God disciplines them and punishes them for their sin and their wrongdoing. Now, uh, look how the chapter begins, and then I want to show you some other scriptural references that help us to get the backdrop of what has happened here. It says, Now Israel remained in the acacia grove, and the people, it says now, began to commit harlotry with the women of Moab. They invited the people to the sacrifices of their gods and the people ate and bowed down to their gods. So Israel was joined to Baal of Peor and the anger of the Lord was aroused against Israel. So this is such an unfortunate thing here. Here for chapter upon chapter, the enemy is trying to destroy them. They're completely oblivious, just going about their everyday lives, and God's protecting them, God's preserving them, and a direct frontal attack against them is not succeeding. But now the enemy finds a more subtle in route uh, into their lives. And of course, this is all just somewhat of a picturesque reminder to us, uh, you know, that if the devil can't succeed in a direct frontal attack, like the roaring lion and devour our lives, then he will always gladly just sort of drop back and, and will work in a more sneaky way like the serpent of old to just subtly inject his venom into our lives and to seek to poison our lives and bring them into self-destruction in a different way. And this is exactly what's happening in this situation. We get this description here, chapter 25, of the people now committing harlotry both literally in the sense of sexual immorality with the women of Moab as well as spiritual adultery or harlotry against God because they begin to participate now it says verse 2 in these sacrifices of the gods of the people of Moab bowing down to their gods and joining in the worship of Baal of Peor now Turn with me, if you would, to chapter 31 in Numbers, and this helps to give you an insight of what's going on here. Numbers 31, if you look down in verse 7, and, and this gives to us commentary on what actually happened, which tells us why this took place and how Balaam, 
This character was the one that was behind what took place. Numbers 31, verse 7 says that Israel warred against the Midianites just as the Lord commanded Moses and they killed all the males and they killed the kings of Midian with the rest of those who were killed. It mentions some of the names of those five kings and then notice and it tells us this time they also at this point historically put to death Balaam, this character we've been looking at that was trying to curse them. Son of Beor, they also killed with the sword. And the children of Israel, verse 9, took the women of Midian captive. They didn't put them to death with their little ones and took a spoil their cattle and flocks and all their goods. And they also burned them with fire in all the cities where they dwelt and their forts. And they took all the spoil and the booty of man and beast. And they brought the captives, the booty and the spoil to Moses, to Eleazar the priest and to the congregation of the children of Israel to the camp in the plains of Moab by the Jordan across from Jericho. Now watch what happens. Verse 13, Moses, Eleazar the priest and all the leaders of the congregation went to meet them outside the camp. But Moses, verse 14, was angry with the officers of the army and the captains over thousands and captains over hundreds who had come from the battle. And Moses said to them, have you kept all the women alive? He's, he's angered that they left these women alive. Verse 16, here's our key verse. Look, he says, these women whom they allowed to remain alive that God declared they were to judge. These women caused the children of Israel through the counsel of Balaam, underline that, through the counsel of Balaam to trespass against the Lord in the incident of Peor and there was a plague among the congregation of the Lord. So we notice there the Bible tells us that the reason this incident of Beor happened, the Baal of Peor incident, was because of the counsel of Balaam. That King Balak was given this advice as a suggestion from Balaam's council of how to bring down and defeat the children of Israel in this incident we'll read about here in chapter 25. Jesus also gave this commentary. Let me just read you a statement of Jesus from Revelation 2. There when Jesus was reproving the church of Pergamos, Jesus said this as well. Jesus said in the New Testament, I have a few things against you, talking to the church of Pergamos, because you have there those who hold the doctrine the idea is the teaching of Balaam. He says this, who taught Balak, the king, to put a stumbling block before the children of Israel to eat things sacrificed to idols and to commit sexual immorality. So there both from chapter 31 and the words of Jesus himself, we see that the reason this incident happens here in chapter 25, the backdrop, which we wouldn't know if we didn't have that other commentary, is not just something that was entered into blindly, but it was a... a, a a uh, subtle seduction of Balaam giving counsel to Balak as I just said a moment ago basically what happens is this as I said Balaam after not successfully cursing them returns back in his greed still wanting to get some type of money out of this deal because his cursing effort didn't work and he says to the king as I said earlier look you can't defeat these people it will never work to curse them. Their God is too strong. He will not allow it. However, they do have a weakness. And their vulnerability is this, King. If you can get them to defeat and curse themselves by dishonoring their God, then you can defeat them from within. Because their God is a jealous God and a righteous God. He wants their full allegiance. And if you can get them to enter into immorality 
and into idolatry against their God to dishonor and betray their God themselves, then they will bring defeat upon their own lives. They will weaken themselves and their God, because he is who he is, will need to judge and punish them because of their sin against them. So what he suggests, we can tell by the first few verses here of chapter 25, is recognizing what would work. He proposes the suggestion to them. He says, look, here's what you do. Take some of these cute little Moabite ladies and have them get themselves all dollied up and you send those Moabite ladies into the camp of Israel and say, hey, big boys, we're going to have a little sacrifice, a little feast, and hey, we're, we're neighboring territories, so uh, how about you just come over and join us? I mean, we're going to be neighbors. We're here in Moab. You're going to be in the promised land and welcome to the neighborhood and we're going to have a little barbecue. And we want to invite you to it and we're going to have some sacrifices. And he knew that through that seduction and the sexual attraction and the sensuality that has a power to influence people, that that would seduce them. And then, of course, the part of their worship in worshiping their gods, Baal of Peor, that was the God of nature. That was their God of fertility. And they believe that this God, through their rites and rituals, would bless their crops and give them fertility. And the way that they went about those ritualistic practices and rites of their worship of their gods and joining in the worship of Baal and Peor was through sexual rites and rituals. Temple prostitutes. And they believe because that was the God of fertility. Well, then, hey, since that's the God of nature and fertility, then the way that we arouse the God of nature and fertility is we enter into the indulgences of nature and, and fertility and sexual practices. So there would be sexual rites and rituals and orgies and things of this sort that they would indulge in to arouse their God to then bring about his fertility and his blessing upon their crops and upon their resources. So this was a part of the practice that then the Israelite men found themselves drawn into as they now engaged, beginning with again, entering into this relational uh, interaction and sexual immorality where they then find themselves then in that moment, then making all sorts of concessions. And see, again, where satanic sorcery failed in chapters 22 to 24, notice that satanic seduction worked rather well. It worked extremely well. And the way it worked extremely well is in the area of sexual temptation and sexual arousal. Preying upon that natural desire, which is in every person, and particularly the men in the camp at this point, to bring them to a place of compromise. Because when they were yearning and longing, when the sexual arousal happened, that caused them to then very easily make concessions. Well, look, well, you know, you know, well, we can do this, but we also need to, you know, have this little ritual with this little idol. And hey, whatever you say, baby. Whatever it takes. And in the moment, the concessions and the compromises would take place to where then it says they then bow down to their gods and they're joined to Baal of Peor and they find themselves through sexual sin entering into great extents of idolatry as well. And again, as I said, the devil is very wise. Yes, he's a roaring lion and sometimes he will directly devour viciously, but he will just as gladly works slowly and seductively like the serpent of old to find ways to inject his venom to poison a life and to gradually bring it down and let me just say sexual sin is a powerful area of major attack 
that the devil uses to rip off and to ruin lives even with God's people. And look, ladies and gentlemen, we live in a culture that has cast off all restraint in the area of sexuality and, you know, I mean, whether it's what is promoted, whether it is what people are participating in. I mean, look at, you know, whether it's on television or ads or whatever. I mean, we are in a verily, you know, a, a very deep sexual, you know, idolatry in our nation, in our culture. It's just the age we live in. And it has just become more brazen and more seductive. And the power of that force to ruin lives, to captivate people, is just continuously increasing. And look, and, and God knows that this is a direct assault of the enemy. God knows that this is an area where, unfortunately, maybe many even Christians find themselves drawn down and entangled in things. Again, these were God's people, and yet they found themselves caught into these things. And I'll tell you the reason why I know that God understands the power and the danger of this and how the devil uses this. Let me just read to you. Please listen, especially if you're married this evening all the more. 1 Corinthians 7, verses 1 through 5, where the Bible is giving instruction on marriage and the value of marriage and the importance of marriage and marriage being esteemed for all that it's intended to be. And the scripture says these words. This is God's inspired words. Now concerning the things which you write to me, Paul says it's, not, it's good for a man not to touch a woman that if he could have such self-control. Then he says, verse two, nevertheless, because of sexual immorality, let each man have his own wife, let each woman have her own husband, and let the husband render his wife the affection to her and likewise the wife to her husband. The wife does not have authority over her own body, but the husband does. Likewise, the husband does not have authority over his own body, but the wife does. Verse five, key verse. Do not deprive one another except with consent for a time that you may give yourselves to fasting and prayer and come together again so that Satan does not tempt you because of your lack of of self-control again as God speaks of marriage God speaks of the imperative component of the marital relationship and the physical element of sexual intimacy in a relationship and God says this is critical to a marriage number one because of rampant sexual immorality in the culture number two because of the strength of the sexual drive and how Satan particularly knows that that is a very vulnerable area where he can very easily bring people down men and women alike so god instructs and encourages husbands and wives not to deprive one another in that area but to routinely and regularly participate in sexual relations and he specifically says so that satan does not tempt you because of lack of self-control Again, God knows this is a very critical area. This is an area, let's be very honest, where many, many people have ruined and caused such regrets for their lives. It's an area where many of us have perhaps regrets and mistakes from our past and things that we become entangled in. And it's an area, quite honestly, where many good men have been brought down. And it's an area, quite honestly, where the devil would love to tarnish your Christian testimony and to discredit your ability to serve him effectively in some capacity in ministry. And, and the devil loves to manipulate this area and we have to be on guard against it. We have to realize the potential of its power and its seductiveness to destroy our lives. And here the Israelites enter into this and it's going to tell us 24 
24,000 people die because of this. 24,000. Look how our text goes on. It says, So the anger of the Lord, understandably, rampant immorality, rampant idolatry, worshiping Baal of Peor, you know, entering into sexual relations with these Moabite women freely and, and openly in these rites and ritual practices, the, the just righteous anger of the Lord was aroused against this. Verse 4, So the Lord said to Moses, Take all the leaders of the people and hang the offenders. The idea is put them to death first and then hang them openly. The idea is, you know, openly deal with their sin. Don't deal with it in some private sense. It's something that needs to be dealt with with a measure of severity. So he says, take all the leaders, assemble the leaders to help you. They know the people. Put them to death. Hang the offenders before the Lord out in the sun that the fierce anger of the Lord may turn away from Israel. You know, one commentator said this. He said, it's interesting how what grows in the dark is put to death if you bring it into the light. I thought there's an interesting comment in relation to this. God says, put them to death and hang them out before the Lord in the sun. Hey, you know, sin flourishes in the dark. Just like funguses and things like certain things grow well in the dark. And sin, particularly sexual sin, a lot of times it's kept in the dark. Whether it's abuse of an interaction with pornography, whether it's you know a, a, a relationship that's inappropriate, that's extramarital, or having sex with somebody who's not your spouse, oh, it, it flourishes well in the dark. But if you really want it to end, and you want to deal with it the way God wants it dealt with, I'll tell you how you put it to death, bring it right into the broad daylight. You bring it right into the broad daylight. Don't give me this, oh, well, yeah, I'm, so, I'm going to deal with it. Just let me keep it private. I don't want to... No, you bring it right into the broad daylight because what flourishes in the dark will die when you bring it right into the broad daylight. It is a severe blow that will deal in a way that God wants to deal with such things that can rampantly destroy and suck the life out of God's people and spiritual health and what he tends for us. So Moses said to the judges of Israel, notice verse 5, every one of you kill, notice, his men who were joined to Baal of Peor. So again, a very measured, notice, a very measured, disciplined act of God to bring about just righteous wrath upon this sin. He says, you know, take the judges and have them mete out this judgment. They know their own people. They'll know who were the ones among their oversight uh, that are involved in these things. So have the judges, the leaders, each one of them participate. Notice this wasn't just something just for Moses to deal with, just for Aaron to deal with. He says, every one of you, Again, he includes the other leaders. He includes the other people of the congregation. And he says, look, you're responsible to help maintain the purity of this camp. And he says, so if you know someone that's doing this, a little leaven, the Bible says, leavens the whole lump. And see, it's not just the issue of the sin itself. It's, it's the effect of it and how it permeates and it spreads. So he says, look, every one of you, if you're aware of someone, then, then God asks, again, that his anger be exercised, that his judgment be dealt with. And notice, he asks for the sin here, verse 4 and 5, to be dealt with directly and rather severely. And, and God asks it to be eradicated, again, not just because it's wrong, but because of the detrimental effects it can have upon the rest of the camp if it's permitted and allowed to be something that's tolerated. 
And sin that is tolerated is sin that spreads and defiles like cancer does in a human body. So God here gives this instruction, verse 6, look what happens in light of that. It says, and indeed, one of the children of Israel came and presented to his brethren a Midianite woman in the sight of Moses and in the sight of all the congregation of Israel who were weeping at the door of the tabernacle of meeting. Now, when Phinehas, the son of Eleazar, the son of Aaron, the priest, saw it, he rose from among the congregation, took a javelin, that is a long spear in his hand, and he went after that man of Israel into the tent and he thrust both of them through the man of Israel and the woman through her body, it seems, as they were engaging in sexual practice. So the plague, verse 8, was stopped among the children of Israel. So look what happens here. We're told in verse 6, you want to talk about how sin, and I use the word, maybe not even as a word, stupefies a person. I mean, look what happens in verse 6. I mean, here's what's taking place. God issues an edict and a call for repentance and, and severe, radical, direct dealing with this rampant sexual immorality and idolatry that has happened among the camp in this incident of, of Peor here with all this taking place. And he says, look, we need to stop this. It needs to be put to death. And there's repentance. It says, verse 6, that Moses and the leaders and the people in a repentant spirit, look what it says. They're there weeping at the door of the tabernacle of meeting. So there's weeping and remorse over the sin. Oh my gosh, what has happened to us? What are we doing? We're the people of God. We're the people of God and we're just as, as you know, immoral and sexually perverse as the people of the lands around us. What are we doing? And here's repentance and weeping and the initiation of remorse and repentance. And in the midst of that, here comes this man. In the middle of this, verse 6, it says, a man of the children of Israel who is so brazen and so defiant, it says, in the sight of Moses and Aaron and all the congregation who were weeping and crying in brokenness and repentance over the sin, he, in essence, right in their sight, has to push past them. Can you excuse me and get out of my way? Here's a Kleenex for your tears. I need to get to my tent with a woman. Now, you want to talk about flagrant disobedience? You want to talk about brazen aggressive indulgence I, I mean by golly when you look at that I mean don't tell me indulgence in sin does not harden and deceive a person their heart and their mind it can produce such an attitude of brazen defiance where a person in that condition as the result of the effects of sin in their life and again whether it's sexual sin that they've entered into and it's become a practice in their life and it's just driving and consuming them in some relationship or quite frankly whether it's any sin indulgence in sin hardens and deceives a person where they can come to a place to be so brazen in their disregard that they have no regard for God they have no regard for anything or for anyone and they'll just not participate privately. They'll do whatever they got to do because it's all about their own self-gratification. And this is so tragic and unfortunate, the condition that a human being can come into. And here's this man. He just pushes right past. He brings it right past their sight with no remorse, no regret, no sense of any care or concern for what he's doing. 
And Phineas, the grandson of, uh, of Aaron, the son of Eleazar, the current high priest, this young man with the zeal of the Lord says, this is insanity. I, this, I, there's no way that this is happening on my watch. And he, with the zeal of God, it says, gets up. And again, keep in mind, this isn't something that was happening privately and he's going around sniffing and looking for people's sins because he likes to rebuke people. And he likes to get his point through. And he likes to you know, give people the point and, and go around chastising and rebuking God's people. No, th this is open defiance. It is very clear what's going on. And Phineas says, look, God told us what to do. And there is no way. And the zeal of the Lord, the zeal of God's glory and for righteousness and the courage of God wells up in his soul. And he radically addresses the situation he goes right behind them follows them into their tent there and literally takes this spear and thrust it through and i want you to notice verse eight it says as a result of his action his action the plague was stopped among the children of israel as the result of that as a result of someone standing up for righteousness someone standing up for god's glory and not being passive in regards to sin listen i think the church should be a forgiving atmosphere it should be a loving atmosphere it should be a gracious atmosphere there's not a single person in this room tonight that in some ways not fractured and struggling and broken and the church is a spiritual hospital but by the same token as god's people we should never begin to become apathetic and passive in our attitude towards sin we should always have a measure of righteousness in our heart that yearns for the holiness and the purity of God and the holiness and purity of God among his people because sin weakens lives and sin destroys and weakens families, both domestic families and the family of God. And the Bible is very clear that there are times when sin needs to be dealt with. And here Phineas radically deals with this and God honors it. The plague is stopped. Look at the tragedy though, verse 9. And those who died in the plague, it says, however, were 24,000. Now, now please, don't read that lightly. You remember the golden calf incident? 3,000 people died there. That's a lot. 3,000 people dead is a lot of people 24,000 people died as the result of this sin again can I say don't tell me that sexual sin and the spread and carnage and devastation of it is not far reaching it killed and destroyed 24,000 people 24,000 lives were destroyed as a result of the plague that came through this loose immorality and this thing that spread among them. And it finally now subsides at that great vast number. And verse 10 says, Then the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Phinehas, the son of Eleazar, the son of Aaron, the priest, notice, God commends him, has turned back my wrath from the children of Israel because he was, look at it there, zealous with my zeal, God says. So again, this wasn't just somebody who flipped out in anger. It wasn't just some self-righteous attitude of this legalistic, you know, uh, child of God. You know, this wasn't this. this. God says here that he was zealous with my zeal. 
Again, remember when Jesus went through the, the temple and he was turning over the tables of the money changers and with a whip, he literally says, was chasing people out of the temple that were ripping people off and you know doing things and spying and selling and they were defiling the house of God and Jesus went through to cleanse the temple and, and, and with pretty fierce intensity, drove people out. He's flipping over tables and it says that the scripture came to mind, zeal for the Lord's house has consumed him. And it was that zeal for God here. And now we see this same zeal in the heart of this man, Phineas, this young man who takes a stand, but yet God says, because he was zealous with my zeal, I did not consume the children of Israel in my zeal. Verse 12, therefore say, behold, I give to him. So God honors what he did. He says, I give to him my covenant of peace. Interesting. He, he acts in, in, in anger. A spirit-filled man acts in anger and puts two people to death. Now, that's a, not a way we often think of being spirit-filled. <laughs> well, often we think of spirit-filled being gentle and... T- look, but here we find a case where somebody is spirit-filled, God says, with my zeal, and he acts very strongly. There is a godly anger. Let's never forget that. There should be a godly anger towards sin and things that ruin lives and that hurt people and destroy people and dishonor God. And here, again, in a a very godly way, his anger is exercised and he stands against what's wrong in the people of God, among the congregation, and turns away the wrath of God. And God says, therefore, I give him my covenant of peace. And it shall be to him and his descendants after him a covenant, an everlasting priesthood, because he was zealous for his God. Great phrase. He was zealous for his God and made atonement for the children of Israel. So the idea there is that God is making this covenant or promise to Phineas, the son of Eleazar, the current high priest, saying to him that his line would now be the line through which the priesthood would continue. The idea is is Eliezer had more than one son, but God says his line now, because of the zeal he has, because he has the zeal of God in his heart and he cares about the glory of God and the honor of God and what is right and righteous, God says, that is who I want in my service. That is who I want to stand on my behalf. And so God here makes a covenant to give the priesthood to his particular family line uh, as it would go forward because he was zealous for his God and he made atonement for the children of Israel. I love that phrase there, zealous for his God and made atonement because I said as a moment ago, what a beautiful picture of Jesus there. Our great high priest who has the true everlasting priesthood, who, as I said, was zealous for his God. We saw it in the days of his life, and he also made atonement. Ultimately, as we celebrate that in communion, we'll reflect upon that tonight. Verse 14 says, Now the name of the Israelite who was killed, who was killed with the Midianite woman, was Zimri, the son of Selu, a leader of the father's house among the Simeonites. So the Bible now records exactly who was responsible for these affairs. Uh, Zimri was the man. Notice that he was the son of a leader. Interesting. A son of a leader. Did that perhaps make him think, as some people wrongly think, that he was entitled to some special privilege? Hey, my dad's a leader. I can do what I want. I have special privileges. And how many times do people make bad choices because they think they have entitlements? I have special privileges. I'm a leader. I have connections. I know people. And God understands my situation. And so others might not be able to get with this, but I'm God's man. I'm special. 
And you wonder if those things contribute in some way. Again, this man so brazen, so flagrant in his disobedience, and yet God dealt with him so severely. Verse 15 says, In the name of the Midianite woman who was killed was Cosby, the daughter of Zer, and he was the head of the people of a father's house in Midian. So again, she came from a very prominent family, from the head of the Midianite people. So she had a family that seems to be a family that had quite a bit of recognition and clout among her culture. But I like this too because it shows the zealousness of Phineas. That Phineas didn't say, oh, you know, I don't know. I mean, both of them come from families that are leaders. And if I get involved in that situation, that might be my neck there. Phineas said, look, I don't care who they are. I don't care if they're the president's son. If what they're doing is wrong, it's wrong. And Phineas here shows no partiality in regards to his zeal for God and his stand for righteousness. He shows no favoritism. He didn't care if they were from a prominent people or if they were just common Joes. What's right is right and wrong is wrong. And Phineas, interestingly enough, was zealous in such a way that this did not even affect him who they were. Verse 16 concludes saying, Then the Lord spoke to Moses saying, Harass the Midianites and attack them. For they harassed you with their schemes by which they, notice, seduced you in the matter of Peor and in the matter of Cosby, the daughter of the leader of Midian, their sister, who was killed in the day of the plague because of Peor. So our chapter concludes here, notice verse 16 through 18, where God himself, as the result of this whole incident now, says to the children of Israel that they were, verse 17, to harass and attack the people of Midian because they had been harassed and, notice, seduced by them with their schemes. So basically what we find here in essence is, is basically God at this point saying, look, because they use their schemes to seduce you into sin, God now declares war against them. And he tells the children of Israel to declare war against them. The reason why, again, not just because they did the things that they did, was also so that they did not have further opportunity to guess what? Cause the same problem to recur again. Because if you don't cut off the source and you don't cut off the opportunity and you leave the bridge, people tend to go back over the bridge again. So God says here, look, you need to cut off those people, attack them, and he declares war against the Midianites so that they would not have recurring opportunity to do the same things repeatedly. And again, as we look at this, what an interesting picture it is of how I think God wants us as Christians to declare war against our sinful flesh and against its schemes and its sensuality to seduce us into doing immoral and unhealthy things that dishonor God as well. The New Testament tells us this, as Christians, as God's people, Colossians 3, verse 5 to 8 says, Therefore put to death the members which are of the earth, fornication, uncleanness, passion, evil desire, covetousness, which is idolatry. He says, Because of these things the wrath of God is coming upon the sons of disobedience, in which you yourselves once walked when you lived in them, but now... You yourselves are to put off all these anger, wrath, malice, blasphemy, and filthy language out of your mouth. Do you hear what the Bible issues as a command to us as Christians now? Out of appreciation that Jesus suffered and died on our behalf, God says, look, yes, I know that you're still wrestling with the sinful flesh and it is like the enemy of the Midianites who will always constantly attack you. So God says, look, I'm making a spiritual declaration. I'm declaring war against your flesh. 
So God says, I'm asking you to put to death the efforts of your flesh in your life. It's going to try and launch its attacks. It's going to do what it can with passion and evil desire and covetousness and forms of idolatry and cause you to want to you know, exercise anger and wrath and malice and blasphemy and filthy language. And God says, put off this stuff. Put it to death. Listen, you can't make treaties with the flesh. You can't pamper the flesh. If there's an area of your flesh that's constantly attacking and trying to seduce you and draw you in to indulging it again, you can't think, well, look, you need to be radical. You need to cut it off. You need to do whatever it takes, practically, circumstantially, the Bible says in the New Testament, make no provision for the flesh. Jesus said if your right hand offends you, your right arm offends you, you, cut it off. If your right eye offends you, what do you say? Pluck it out. That's pretty radical. And that's the idea. That was the, the emphasis of Jesus saying sometimes to deal with sin, there's got to be radical efforts. It tells us as well in Romans chapter 8, verse 12 to 14, Therefore, brethren, we are debtors, it says, but not to the flesh, to live according to the flesh. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit, notice, by the Spirit, you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. For as many as are led by the Spirit of God, these are the sons of God. So we see this recurring message through the New Testament telling us, put to death the areas of your flesh. Listen, the flesh is going to try and rise back up to the surface. It's a constant battle. Peter says to abstain from the fleshly lusts that war against your soul. I don't know about you, but I know that ever since I've become a Christian, now there's a war going on inside of me. Before I was a Christian, it didn't seem like it was a war because I just surrendered and did whatever I wanted to do. So if you feel all embattled within you, I just feel like there's a constant war going on inside of me. You're saved. Praise the Lord. Spurgeon used to say, dead men don't wrestle. Living men wrestle. And now there is a battle within. The flesh and the spirit are lusting against one another. And so the Bible says, look, you need to understand your spiritual position and in the authority of Christ, yield to the victory of Jesus and put to death the flesh, to abstain. Those things are going to war against your soul. They're going to pressure. They're going to launch their attacks. And you can't flirt with those things. You can't compromise them. You can't give any little opportunity because if you even make a small opportunity or a small provision for your flesh, listen, whether it's sexual sin and lust, whether it's you know beginning to nurse a little grudge, a root of bitterness and think, oh, well, I just, I'm, I'm, I'm going to hold on to this anyway. Look, you will become a bitter, miserable, poisoned person because you think you're entitled to hold on to your little root of bitterness. In any area of sin, we need to realize it must be dealt with severely and directly because that's the only way the plague of it consuming and ravaging devastation in our life is dealt with. So that incidents like this, 1 Corinthians 10 refers to this and says these things are written for our example so that we don't fall prey to the same thing. God sets them before us to help us in our lives. You know, thank goodness like Phineas, Jesus faithfully dealt with the plague of sin just like Phineas Jesus put an end to sin's power and penalty 1 Peter 2 says Jesus suffered for us who himself bore our sins in his own body 
How wonderful that, look, the plague of sin because of our participation in sin existed in the same way. Look, don't look at that scene and say, oh, how gross. They they did what in those, oh, these these pigs. These Moabite women and men, oh, they're just pigs. Listen, we're all pigs. I hate to break it to you. We're all pigs in our own right and way. We've all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And the wonderful thing is, in the same way Phineas rose up in zeal for God and did what was right and righteous and made atonement for his people and pierced those two so that the plague was stopped, Jesus did the same thing. He lived righteously the life that I don't live. He lived sinlessly and never failed because I'd never done that and never will. And Jesus, in zeal for his God, did what was obedient and he was obedient to the point of death. And then he didn't pierce somebody else. He let himself be pierced. And he let himself be punished. And he let the affliction come upon himself so that we could be set free. That's what Isaiah 53 is all about. You know, this morning in my devotions, one of the statements that stood out to me, Isaiah 47, it says, The Lord, our Redeemer. Yahweh, our Redeemer. And it came to my mind again, that reminder, Wow, Lord, not only did you send a Redeemer, you became our Redeemer. The very one who we sinned against didn't just graciously, mercifully send a Redeemer, he actually became our Redeemer and took the pain and punishment so that we could be forgiven and set free. Let's stand together. Let's pray.